welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Please pray with me. Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this time and this message from your word to edify, to exhort, and to convict. And please bless this body. Please help us to know you better through the preaching of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, and that if any of these words are errant or false, that they would be immediately forgotten and cast aside. I pray for you to bless our time together. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, Christ Covenant. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be up here again, bringing the word. Lord willing, it will be edifying and beneficial for all of you. Last time I uh, was, was up here and had the opportunity to preach, we had just started into 1 Peter. So we are a whole five verses into the book. <laughs> so we gave a brief uh, overlook of Peter, and who he was, when he was writing, and who he was writing to. No doubt, if even if Peter was directing his message to the elect exiles of his day, his words are beneficial for us too. Faithful Christians should have a changed heart that is evident enough that we are considered different. And of course, that's a good thing. Sometimes we forsake the differences because we fear man more than we fear God. But as Devin so wonderfully laid out for us last week, the fear of the Lord is where we must start. And if we fear the Lord and obey his commandments, then we will be different in a good way. The world should look at your life and wonder why you don't steal when it's so easy to do so, or maybe why you don't swear when everyone else around you does, why you don't make fun of your husband or your wife, or perhaps kids here today, are you regarded as different? As one who doesn't cheat or doesn't lie when everyone else around you is doing those things? 
As Peter mentions later in his epistle, we should be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us and not be surprised when suffering comes. There was a time in our relatively young nation when a lot of people believed the same things. But that was mainly because it began with the majority who were faithful to God's word, who opposed tyranny and set forth to the New England to start something new. Today, we may be feeling the pain of the tyrants of our day, and of course, there is nothing new under the sun. Thank you, Ecclesiastes 1.9. So we are the exiles of today, and the world mocks, scoffs, and tries to persecute those who fear God and stand for truth. Peter is talking to us. Because of that, we need to remember that we have much hope because we have been chosen to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verses 3 through 5, there is much hope. It's wonderful that Peter gives us the good news first because later in his book, things aren't quite so rosy. But for now, be encouraged by his words today as we reflect on his wonderful promises salvation. As we work through these verses, I want to focus on five main points of, of encouragement. They are no mystery, as they are right in the text. But keep in mind that this encouragement is meant to strengthen, strengthen the faith, as we are told right after verses five, verse 5 in chapter 1, that we will also have trials and suffering. But for today, be encouraged. That is the point. Five main points that I'm going to work through are, one, God is blessed. God is blessed. Point number two will be God is merciful. Point number three will be God has caused our rebirth. Point number four, God has regenerated us to an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. And point number five would be God's power is guarding us through faith, for salvation. We'll go back through this. Peter starts his letter and then just stumbles right into a doxology. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This often happens to Paul, as Tyler Hatcher has mentioned when he preaches here, that when he's in, when he's in Ephesians, he talks about Paul working into the text and then suddenly he bursts open into doxology and praise. So after a brief intro into verses 1 and 2, Peter begins with this doxology. And in verses 3 through 5, a doxology is just a hymn of praise. The word comes from the Greek word doxa, which refers to glory, but not just any glory. Glory that is ascribed to God. During our service here, after we have confessed our sins, and then our sins are forgiven and proclaimed forgiven through the blood of Jesus, we bring back praise to God through singing of what? The doxology. This is often done in other churches who practice covenant renewal worship. We love our covenant renewal worship. Doxology is ascribing back to God the glory that is only due to him. It is at the heart of worship, and that is where Peter begins. As he starts with this doxology, we come to our first main point, that God is blessed. God is blessed. What do we mean that God is blessed? Sometimes we don't think about that. Often when we pray, what do we do? We ask for God's blessing. We ask for God to bless things. We ask him to bless 
our day, or our family, or our work, and so on. We have a few kids right up front here. So kids, I want to ask you a question. Okay. What do you ask God to bless in your life? Any examples? What do you ask God to bless? Molly? To bless your family. Yeah. Anybody else have any examples? We ask God to bless many things, right? We ask God to bless people who are sick, people who need healing. We ask God to bless our church. There's so many things that we ask God to bless. Okay, but what do you think it means that God is blessed? Interesting, isn't it? We, haven't, we don't think about that often. I don't know if you think about it a lot, but we do bless God in various ways. And perhaps you do it without even realizing it. I'm going to re read the beginning of verse 3 in the NIV now translation instead of the ESV. All of the texts that I'll, I'll be reading are going to be ESV, but I'll read the NIV here. Chapter, uh, verse 3 starts with, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? In the ESV, it begins with, Blessed be, but in the NIV, it starts with, Praise be. The Greek word can be translated either as praise or blessed. So if you haven't figured it out yet, we bless God with our shouts of praise. Here are some other instances of people proclaiming that God is blessed and the association that that has with praise. 1 Chronicles 16, 36. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then all the people said amen and praised the Lord. Nehemiah 9, 5. Then the Levites, I'm going to omit all of the very tricky names, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Psalm 68. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Needless to say, there are many examples. But the point is that God is blessed with praise, honor, and glory, which alone are due to his holy name. That is the praise, honor, and glory that we should be giving him. Keep your ears open toward the end of the service as well, and let me know if you don't hear something like, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Ah, we are commanded to bless the Lord through our praises. Amen to Psalm 134 as well. So we'll even have another example of that at the end of the service. But knowing that God is blessed, we're going to move on to point number two. It is that God is merciful. God is merciful. This is not new news. There are many examples, but let's, let's, let's look at this a little bit closer. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is not rocket science, I know, but it's helpful to think as we consider these passages all working together and what they mean. Peter recalls God's mercy in an excellent way in chapter 2 of this book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
On this side of the Christian walk, many of us can recall how we were once not God's people. Whether you are aware of when that happened, whether that, when that reality was true for you, whether or not you felt God's spirit moving in you, apart from Christ, we are in sin and we are worthy of condemnation. Romans 3.23. And God's mercy for us was manifested in love, as Romans 5.8 says. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This concept goes from cover to cover in the Bible, starting with the Old Covenant and being consummated with the New. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you. Or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And Second Chronicles says, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion, and their captors and return to the Lord and return to the land. For the Lord your God is a gracious and merciful, and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Again, examples abound of God's mercy. But as this passage illustrates, his great mercy leads to us being reborn. To a living hope. The cause of his mercy is, or the end result of his mercy is our being reborn. Amen. It's manifested and at its pinnacle when it comes to our rebirth. We deserve condemnation if left in our sin. Yet, in God's great mercy, he has chosen his people to regeneration, which brings us to the next point. Number three. God has caused our rebirth. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a reason that the text says that he caused it. It didn't just happen willy-nilly. It wasn't evolution. It was caused. There was causality. In this part of verse 3, we have the providence of God on full display again. God has caused us to be born again. Nature cannot imagine any birth except, that, except what is within its own sphere. Only those who partake in this spiritual birth understand what it means. To others, it remains a riddle. Nature cannot aspire to this new birth. It is not a superficial change, but a new life and being. This is our spiritual birth, our regeneration. One commentary that I was looking at uh, by Robert Layton said this, A moral man in his changes and reformations of himself, remains the same man. The natural man turns from one thing to another, but remains the same person. But the Christian, by virtue of this new birth, can say, I am not the same man I was. I am a son of the King of Kings. Amen. End quote. Also, John 1.12 says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God where did the belief come from this is commonly distorted in our culture by the idea that we must have faith in order to be reborn but the sovereign God from all eternity decrees those to whom he will give the gift of faith which is the fruit of regeneration not the cause of it the older, tradition, the older traditional Reformed churches have declared that regeneration precedes faith, which is a distinguishing article of Reformed theology, which we, um, which we hold to. How can we have believing faith in God 
If first our hearts of stone are not made hearts of flesh in the hand of the Redeemer. This is the doctrine of radical corruption that Les so wonderfully has talked about before. We are corrupt, bankrupt even, unless God changes our hearts. This is the work of God, so that no one may boast, as Ephesians declares in 2.8. This ties right into the mercy and love of God as well. His great mercy and love for us is on display in this because it was not of ourselves. The passage in Ephesians 2 is just excellent. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I'm going to go to verse 1 to verse 5, if you wanted to jump there, but I'll read it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's a wonderful passage. That wonderful phrase that we can latch onto in this passage, and I know I think I've heard less talk about this, but God. All of those things. We were dead. We went after what we desired. We did what we wanted to. And by golly, no one was going to tell us otherwise. So that we would be handed over to Satan and sifted like wheat. But God. God's wonderful and providential mercy and grace has caused us to be reborn. Without his mercy and grace, it would not be possible. And so we praise him. We worship him for his great love towards us. We come together each Lord's Day so that we can shout our praises to him, be reminded of our sin, and reconcile ourselves to the realization of God's loving kindness towards us, that we would obey his precepts and follow his laws, giving him alone the glory due to his name. Praise be to God that he has caused those whom he foreknew to be born again to a living hope through faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. We now come to point number four. God has regenerated us to an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. This answers the question further of what it is that God has regenerated us to. He's saved us. He has changed our hearts. That regeneration has borne out to something. The text says not only that we were born again to a living hope, but that we have been reborn to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance. Now, what comes to mind when you think of an inheritance? Typically, when we hear that word, we think of money. You know, the long-lost rich uncle that we barely knew existed, passed away and suddenly have a large check show up in the mail. That type of fantasy land. <laughs> or, for some, it may be that uh, their parents have large fortunes and they eagerly await the time when they inherit that wealth for their own. In some cases, like, oh, I don't know, Luke 15, think prodigal son, 
There were those that would be so bold as to demand their inheritance even before their father was dead. Those are very cold and worldly views. Unfortunately, they can be common views in this world. Of course, those are bad views to have as a Christian. We must value life and the treasures in heaven above any worldly treasures on earth. Let us remember Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where wrath and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So if we're not looking at the common idea of an earthly inheritance, what is this inheritance that God has regenerated us to? Yes, it is our heavenly inheritance. With this description, we again see the fact that an inheritance on earth is not something that we earn. It is given. Even more so the case with our heavenly inheritance. Our eternal destination in heaven with Christ, the King, does not rely on our own works. Praise be to God. Romans 8, 17 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are heirs with Christ to this inheritance. And not only does it not lay in our hands, but it is also many other things, many wonderful things. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The laws of entropy are hard to overcome in our finite minds here on earth. It is hard for us to imagine something untouched by the destruction of the destructive forces of like the sun, the weather, use and abuse, wear and tear, lots of kids in your house, etc. <laughs> we know entropy all too well. Our shoes don't get any better looking with time. Our cars don't get any better with time. Our homes. Wouldn't it be nice if our cars always stayed in that like new condition? It's like that new car smell, you know, if you've smelled that before. It's distinct. It's fantastic. But it fades. We know that it won't last. Yet we can know that there is no expiration date on our eternal dwelling with God. It doesn't even become defiled when we still sin on this earth. When I think of what we have reserved for us in heaven, I tend to think a certain way. I tend to think about my failures and my misdeeds and then start to think that this, this I think of this like large, golden, brown, moist, wonderful chocolate chip cookie. And every time I sin, like little crumbs just fall off the sides. And then I start to wonder, huh, I wonder how much of that big cookie up there is going to be left by the time uh, the Lord calls me home. I admit I have felt that way at times. But this is worked works-based righteousness creeping in, and I must repent of it. With faith, we can rest in the work of Jesus Christ and trust that our heavenly inheritance in Christ is preserved to the uttermost for us, which then brings us to the fifth main point. The final main point of our encouragement is that God's power is guarding us through faith for salvation. God's power is guarding us through faith for salvation. Verse 5 in our first Peter text says this, Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power. And if God be for us, who can be against us? 
that immediately comes to mind as I think of God's power guarding us. This comes from Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, which says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And to expand on that a bit, verses 37 through 39 then says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that. What an awesome assurance that nothing shall separate us from God's love and salvation through Jesus. This is the gift of faith, which carries us through to salvation. Our faith is being guarded by God, which reminds me of another story about Peter. I was thinking about this as going through the passage, and what happened to Peter? Peter was uh, about to be handed over. If you, many of you remember, I, there was a reason I used that phrase, sifted like wheat. Uh, this, is, this pops up in, in Luke. Luke 22, verses 30 through 32 says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. We have God guarding us in this. We know by the fullness of the revealed word that even though Jesus was predicting Peter's denial, ultimately his faith was guarded. Jesus used that denial of Peter to humble him. I think we can say for certain that Peter was very influential in the growth of the early church. But if he was not so humble, I don't know that it would have went well for him. After this, after he overcame this bout, he was bold. He preached with boldness. He was known as a bold preacher of the word. If God had not strengthened him, though, where would have he ended up? We don't know for sure, but Peter's denial could have been more devastating than we could have understood for his faith if it had not been strengthened by the Lord Jesus. We have this mighty God guarding and strengthening us. We who have been given those hearts of flesh that have been transformed from those hearts of stone. We've cast off those hearts of stone, and therefore we can go out and live in a way that is bold, proclaiming Christ until he comes. So in order to kind of wrap a bow on all those five main points and summarize some of this, this truth brings us back to the title of the sermon, which is mentioned near the end of verse 3, that we are begotten to a living hope. This is significant in that Christ lives and reigns with God the Father and intercedes for us. Christ has conquered over the grave for us to live in hope of our heavenly inheritance. As I think of this, I think of this living hope, and I remember 1 Corinthians 15, and what it says about the importance of Christ's literal victory over death in the grave. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, 
and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it was true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So how glorious it is to the truth that Christ has been raised and that is conquered over sin and death. This hope, this living hope is known. It is certain. It is solid. It is based on the promises of Scripture. Christ is alive and reigning. That is our living hope. Hope in this world is often defined as faith in something that is uncertain. But the hope of the children of the living God is a living hope and it is definite. It is defined. It is not uncertain. It is a fearful thing when a man and all his hopes die together. See for reference Proverbs 11.7 or 14.32. For those with Christian hope, though, death is a messenger sent to bring them home to possess their inheritance. So, we can live with faith, with living hope, God guarding and strengthening us. We need not rely on our strength for this. It is the strength and sufficiency of God and Christ that we rely on. This is the gospel. We are dead in sin when left to our own, but God is merciful. So cast your cares on him and experience the salvation of Christ through his blood-bought sacrifice. If any of you find yourselves guarding your heart of stone, trusting in the world through your own strength, then come to the feet of Jesus. Lay your burdens down, cast them at his feet. He cares for you and will give you rest. If you would be mindful of the Holy Spirit and its work in your heart, let that spirit shatter the hardness of your heart so that your faith may be made known and your belief in God would transform your mind. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.